the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Special guest on today's edition of Lifeline, we're visiting with senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas and speaker on Pathway to Victory broadcast, best-selling author, Dr. Robert Jeffress, a look at his new book, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, sharing an exclusive Jesus in an inclusive world. I'm curious about part of this issue here, Dr. Jeffress, if where we're, we're, we're failing at this point is that we've perhaps laid a lot of our faith at the so-called altar of tolerance, this notion that, well, if God is really a loving God, surely he will accept us so long as we are sincere in our effort to reach him, whether we call God Allah, Yahweh, or Maitreya. Well, that's right. And by the way, that's one of the objections that I deal with in this book. You know, I wrote this book, Craig, so that people could reclaim this belief that Christ is the only way to heaven. And I, you know, answer seven of the major objections to that belief, the one you just raised. Well, you know, people simply call God by a different name. Or the objection, well, what about those who have never heard the name of Jesus? Isn't it unfair that God would send them to hell for rejecting a Jesus they never heard of? Or what happens to infants and small children who are too young to trust in Christ? First Peter 3.15 says we need to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks us for the hope that is within us. But uh, let's take that question you just raised about, well, you know, what about tolerance? And what about people who just call God by another name? Well, you know... Names <clears throat> mean something. Allah of the Quran is not Jehovah God of the Bible. Allah is an imaginary God. Jehovah is a real God. Allah has no sons. Jehovah has one son who died on the cross for our sins. Allah says the land of Israel belongs to the descendants of Ishmael. Jehovah God, the real Bible, says the God that Israel belongs to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are not the same gods. And I illustrated that to my congregation, Greg, uh, a few weeks ago. I was talking about David Jeremiah. I said to my congregation, just suppose for several weeks we announced that Dr. Jeremiah was going to be the guest preacher at our church. And everybody packed in on a particular Sunday to hear David Jeremiah. But instead, I stood up and preached. And after the service, a few of you came up to me and trying to mask your disappointment said, well, wait a minute, is Dr. Jeremiah sick today? Oh, no, not that I know of, I said. Well, the bulletin says he's going to preach here. It says right here, David Jeremiah. 
I said, oh, well, David Jeremiah is just another name I go by sometimes. Sometimes I use David Jeremiah, sometimes Joel Olstein, sometimes Al Sharpton, but we're all preachers. We're all the same. Well, that's ridiculous. Names represent something. And the Bible says in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. First John 5.13 says, these things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might have eternal life. Now, part of this is not only a, a complete disconnect from the fundamental teachings of our faith, but perhaps some, some extreme intellectual dishonesty, too. I mean, isn't this partly born out of this notion that somehow it, it, it's possible to have multiple truths all yeah, be valid yeah. simultaneously? Boy, you hit the nail on the head with that. In fact, that's one of the things I talk about in Not All Roads Lead to Heaven. You know, there's what we call absolute truth. And then there's relative truth. Both are real phenomenon. There's absolute truth and relative truth. For example, if I ask you, what temperature does water freeze at? Well, the answer is 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It's not 35 degrees. It's not 16. It's 32 degrees is the freezing temperature of water. But if I were to ask you, what's a comfortable room temperature? Well, that's relative truth. For some people, it's 72. For some people, it's 68. For some people, it's 55. When it comes to the question, how can a person have a right relationship with God, the world today thinks that's a relative truth. It's a matter of whatever you think it is. But God says, no, there's an absolute answer to that question. There is only one way to me, and it's through my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's not a new concept. I show in the book, I have a chapter called The Old Way Was One Way, showing how from the very beginning of the Old Testament, God always required an exclusive way to worship Him. I wonder if we come back full circle that this also doesn't reveal a fundamental um, inaccuracy or misunderstanding of everything from the nature of God to the nature of mankind, the notion of God's demand for sacrifice for the remission of sin, uh, and that there, there's a disconnect here so that all of a sudden we get very, well, I was going to say sloppy grace, it's almost non-existent grace, because we're trying trying to define the terms of engagement with God based on our terms as opposed to his terms. Another great point. You know, the problem, the reason we embrace this uh, uh, inclusivism and reject exclusivity is because of two things. First of all, we think too little of God, and secondly, we think too high of ourselves. Uh, you know, we think, well, we're able to overlook sin in other people. Why can't God be as tolerant as we are? I mean, every day we overlook sin in others, we overlook sin in ourselves. But the fact that we do that is not a sign of our uh, how much we are like God. It's a sign of how much we are unlike God. You know, the word uh, holy means a cut above, separate, distinct. God is called holy. He is different than we are. He said through Habakkuk the prophet, mine eyes are too pure to uh, see evil. God cannot tolerate evil like we are. He is holy. We're not. And we overestimate our own goodness as well. You know, we tend to judge ourselves based on other people. We find somebody who's worse than we are and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden the drug dealer, the child molester, I must be pretty good. But that's not the standard God uses. You know, I remind people that the geographical distance between the North Pole and the South Pole is considerable. 
but it's also negligible when compared to the distance between the North Pole and the farthest star in the universe. It's the same way with us. The difference between human beings seems to be a great deal. You know, the difference between Hitler and Walt Disney seems to be a lot of difference in, in, in morality. But in God's eyes, the difference between Walt Disney and Adolf Hitler is negligible compared to the difference between Walt Disney and you and me and God, who is absolutely perfect. And only Jesus Christ can bridge that gap between God and man. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We all must make a payment for our sins or allow God to make that payment for us. So fundamental misunderstanding of not only the character of God, but who we are in relationship to God's character. And then at the other extreme, and that is perhaps a fundamental denial of Satan and his efforts at not only watering down the gospel, but the outright perversion of that message. Well, that's right. And, uh, you know, the Bible says to avoid the way of Cain in Jude verse 11. The way of Cain describes Cain's... uh, the decision that he would try to approach God on his own terms rather than God's terms. And every other world religion, Craig, is really a a deviation uh, or a derivation of the way of Cain, man's attempt to approach God in his own way. And, uh, you know, 2 Corinthians 11 says that Satan appears as an angel of light to deceive people. And other religions are really tools of Satan to lead people away from God. You know, when he says an angel of light, he appears sometimes as, isn't it interesting that Muhammad uh, claims that he received an angelic revelation of Islam and that Joseph Smith uh, claims that an angel delivered to him the teaching of Mormonism? I have no doubt an angel appeared to both men, but it wasn't an angel from God. And uh, Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 11, we should not be surprised that Satan's servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Many world religions, uh, many uh, groups, uh, I mean, they, they sound good, they look good, they sound like they're teaching great moral principles, but they are leading people away from the only way to God, which is faith in Christ alone. Well, and at the core, too, not only is it the sense of, you know, all roads lead to heaven, biblically ignorant, it shows that we're, we're theologically dishonest here. You make a beautiful illustration inside of your book, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, this idea that somehow I can get on any highway and wind up at First Baptist Church in Dallas. Now, I guarantee you, if I took off here and got on 101 here in the San Francisco Bay Area, it could lead me to San Diego and eventually to Mexico, and I could make my way all the way up through the Oregon coast and eventually wind up in Canada. But no matter what direction I go on Highway 101, here's what I can guarantee you. It will not lead me to First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. That's right. And, you know, let's say, let's keep that analogy. Let's say that, uh, all, that, that in fact, all roads do lead to heaven. Well, that means Christianity is wrong. Uh, if, Christ, if, if Jesus is wrong about this, then you put your faith in the wrong person. Christianity is not the way to heaven if Jesus was wrong about this. But then here's the question. Which of the other thousands of ways to God do you choose? 
and, and, and what really confuses the matter is most all of other religions claim to be exclusive as well. So, I mean, you're left without knowing how to get there if Christianity is wrong. And the fact is, I mean, all different religions are not different roads that lead up the same mountain of truth. Jesus said there's only one way to him. Our guest today, Dr. Robert Jeffers, a look at his new book, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Bestselling author Dr. Robert Jeffress, a look at his new book, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, sharing an exclusive Jesus in an inclusive world. By the way, the new book recently published by Baker Books, available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order it through Dr. Jeffress's website associated with the broadcast Pathway to Victory. Simply go to ptv.org. That's ptv.org. In your book, Dr. Jeffress, you walk through Four, I think, very fundamental and yet critical definitions that I think will help the average reader better understand um, not only the slippery slope that, that leads to some of this very sloppy and dangerous theology, but also the importance of, of defining the differences between some of these fundamental worldviews. Walk us through, if you would, brief, briefly, some definitions on universalism, pluralism, inclusivism, and exclusivism. Well, I don't want to get lost in the theological weeds in the few minutes that we have, but let me just basically say, you know, universalism is the belief that uh, everybody is going to heaven regardless of what they believe or don't believe. Pluralism kind of limits it to what needs to be religious people, but it really doesn't matter uh, what uh, religious people, uh, what religion it is, that people are saved by the death of Jesus Christ, whether they know his name or not. And that's the point that I want to make, because one of the key questions, Craig, is, well, what about those who have never heard about Jesus? The pluralist would say, that's really no problem, that they are welcomed into heaven anyway. And yet, that's not what the Bible teaches. You cannot find one example in the New Testament of anyone uh, being saved apart from a personal faith in Jesus. Of course, the objection is, well, what about those who have never heard? Isn't it patently unfair for God to send people to hell who've never heard about Jesus? And here's the answer I give in the chapter devoted to this. Romans 1 says, everyone, by looking at creation, can know that there is a God. And although an acceptance of the, uh, the existence of God is not enough to save a person, it is enough if rejected to condemn a person. You know, we used to talk about the heathen in Africa, as if all the heathen congregated in Africa. I'm not sure that's why that was, but let's, let's talk about a 12-year-old girl who lives in Syria. She's never heard about Jesus, never seen a Bible. How is she saved? Well, she can look into the heavens and know she didn't create this world. That can't save her, but if she responds to the light God gives her, I think the Bible is clear that God will send to that girl the light she needs to trust in Jesus as her Savior. I mean, he did that for the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. Here was a guy who wanted to know God. He's in his chariot reading Isaiah, can't make heads or tails of it. God miraculously sends uh, the evangelist Philip with the message of the gospel. Or think about the Roman centurion, Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. He was a lover of God, prayed regularly, gave his money to the poor. By most people's standards, that should be enough to go to heaven. 
but not by God's standard. He needed to hear Jesus. And so God miraculously sends Peter to preach to him the gospel. What I'm saying is whenever God sees a heart that really wants to know him, you can know for sure that God is going to get the information about Jesus that person needs to be saved. And certainly if God is capable of sending his only son to be born of a virgin, to suffer, die, rise again on the third day, if God is capable of doing all of that, he is certainly capable of individually revealing himself to persons who are perhaps beyond the reach of the church or not having uh, ever been exposed to the gospel in the fashion and form in which we would understand it. Well, that's right, and I don't think it's any accident that missionaries go where they go. I don't think it's any accident that the radio signals and television signals and the Internet literally reach around the world sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do we make of some of these individuals? And there are big names that come to mind, including uh, one big one that's down in your home state that (laughs) would look seriously at the television screen and say, well, now when it comes to this matter of uh, does this mean that someone, for example, who is um, Jewish is necessarily going to hell. How do we deal with this exclusivity, the notion that salvation is limited to those who exercise faith in Christ and Christ alone? And of course, we've heard these answers. You articulate one in the book that's sort of this, well, I'm not sure, don't know, not up to me to judge. How do we give an answer for that from a biblical perspective? Well, and we've all seen people wilt under the television lights and basically, you know, break out in a sweat, stutter and stammer and basically say, I don't know, I don't know. We have to leave that up to God. Well, the problem with that is God has already made his judgment about that. And he's articulated it in the scripture. And we need to be bold and compassionate and share that message with other people as well to save them from hell. You know, when people... uh, accuse me of being anti-Semitic. I've been accused of that because I insist that Jews, like everybody else, must trust in Christ to be saved. That's not anti-Semitic. Jesus is the one who said it. Last time I checked, he was a Jew. The Apostle Peter was a Jew who said it. Acts 4.12, there is no salvation except by the name of Jesus. The Apostle Paul was the Hebrew of the Hebrews, the Jew of the Jews, and yet he gave his entire life to preaching that there is no salvation apart from the name of Jesus. So when you have the three most prominent Jews of the New Testament saying you have to believe in Jesus, well, I mean, I think that speaks for itself. Early on in the book, you talk about this notion that uh, part of this slippery slope has been the fact that largely we as evangelical Christians on this very topic have been outmarketed, outmaneuvered, oh. outfought, and outargued. How do we come back full circle? How do we redeem this to bring it back, back to the this fundamental teaching that narrow, as the scripture tells us, narrow is the gate. Well, you know, the fact is, I, I think the fact that 57% of evangelicals believe there's more than one way to God, I mean, really is a reflection on what's being taught and not being taught in the pulpits today. I mean, as I, you mentioned, several major pastors who are waffling on this issue. My old professor at Dallas Seminary, Howard Hendricks, used to say, whatever is a mist in the pulpit becomes a fog in the pew. And I think a lot of people in the pew are are foggy about this issue because they're not hearing it taught from pastors who want to be loving and kind and don't want to run anybody off and so forth, and they are neglecting their role to be prophets and evangelists teaching the Word of God. And Craig, let me just say in the closing moments, that's why I wrote Not All Roads Lead to Heaven. 
to equip Christians to reclaim this truth, and I encourage Christians to get it and read it for themselves, but also be ready to share that answer. You know, most people, if their child or grandchild asks them, well, do you believe a, a, a Muslim is going to hell? How could you say that? They wouldn't know what to say. Or if they were asked, well, what about children and infants who are too young to trust in Christ? They couldn't give any reason why they believe they're in heaven. All of those things I cover in my book. And as we enter this Easter season, especially as people are more open to Jesus, maybe some of our listeners know people who follow other faiths. They've never known how to approach them without offending them. Here's a great idea. Get a copy of Not All Roads Lead to Heaven and just give it to them as a gift, saying, I'd like to share with you why my faith is so important to me. I'll guarantee you this title, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, will grab their attention immediately, and it may be a great conversation starter. Are we as the church, as we kind of conclude our conversation together, Dr. Jeffress, are we as a, as the church at, at a very critical crossroads because it, it, it occurs to me that this is a this is as, as they say sometimes the deal breaker yeah uh, that, that if we as the church do not fundamentally understand if we're not capable of of giving an answer for the hope that lies within as scripture exhorts us if we do not understand the necessity of atonement or if we somehow uh, recoil against this notion of, of spilt blood atonement for sin uh, appeasement uh, propitiation things of this sort if 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 we find all of that very uncomfortable, and we are therefore not able to effectively communicate the faith that we supposedly live and believe in, it would seem to me that, that, that absent that, that the church becomes horrifically neutered. It does. And look, you know, you made an allusion to this. We lost the gay marriage battle because we were outfought, outfought, and outmarketed on the issue. And you know, marriage is a very important issue, but it pales in comparison to this issue. This issue is the foundation of the Christian faith. How can a person be reconciled with God? And if we allow ourselves to be outfought, outfought, and outmarketed on this, really, we need to shut the doors of our church and uh, keep our money for ourselves. Forget about evangelism and missions. We don't have a message to share with anyone if everyone's going to be in heaven anyway. A sobering message that comes from the very heart of God himself. Don't believe me? Read the scripture. And you can work through a better understanding of this topic, not only for yourself, but in sharing your faith with others, as Dr. Robert Jeffers so aptly points out. The book, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, Sharing an Exclusive Jesus in an Inclusive World. Newly published, as we mentioned earlier, by Baker Books. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as ordering it online through the Pathway to Victory website at ptv.org. That's ptv. Org. And our thanks, as always, to Dr. Robert Jeffress, Senior Pastor at First Baptist Church of Dallas and speaker on Pathway to Victory. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, the topic in this segment of the show is not a pleasant one. It's not an easy one to deal with. It's one that, frankly, I think most of us would rather avoid. And yet it is a normative part of life. And I guess that at the forefront needs to be something we all need to be reminded of. And that is as much as we we celebrate events in life, weddings, the birth of a new child, we celebrate new beginnings. Um, there's not much celebration, though, that comes to the end of events. We don't celebrate when a marriage ends. We certainly don't have cause to celebrate when a life ends. 
Although, certainly from a Christian perspective, we understand, you know, as Paul said, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And yet that grieving process is not so much for the loved one who's gone on to their reward. They've run the good race. They've, they've finished the race. They've crossed that finish line. And, and uh, now they go on to their reward. And that we grieve for ourselves because of the sense of loss that we feel, the presence of that special someone in our life that is suddenly gone from us. Certainly the impressions that they made on us, the influence that they had in our lives, that's something you never lose. And maybe that's another thing that we need to be mindful of as we begin our conversation tonight, that there is much hope to be found, particularly for the Christian, during times of loss and grief. The title, Finding Hope in Times of Grief, uh, uniquely sets to this new book tonight as we talk about this topic of how to go about um, dealing with loss in life and where to turn when a loved one passes. Joining me on the program, uniquely qualified to address this topic, a couple who, um, inside of one week, lost both a father and a son. And Preston and Glenda Parrish, thanks so much for taking time to be with us on the show tonight. Hey, Craig, it's great to be with you tonight. It's good to be with you, Craig. Uh, Preston, let me start with you. Kind of set up, if you would, the scenario for our listeners. Uh, You know, it's never easy to be sure when you lose a loved one, more difficult still when that loved one is a parent. Um, In your case, though, it was sort of a double whammy within one week, wasn't it? Well, it was, and I so appreciated your opening comments. We all do love to celebrate the blessings that come to us in life, the happy occasions, and of course we live in a society that likes to dwell on those things to the exclusive of the other part of reality, namely that we live in a world that's fallen, a world that's out of order, and in fact a world where one out of every one person does die where difficult events happen, such as we've seen in Japan most recently. And the fact is that we really do have to be prepared to take not just the happy times, but also the difficult times, and to deal with those uh, from the standpoint of a a rock-solid foundation. And the importance of doing that was driven home for us five years ago, as in the same week, as you mentioned, my aged and ailing father died, but then also just the day after we buried my father, our 25-year-old son, Nathan, a college graduate, uh, an instructor at a science camp there in California, uh, he died in a rock climbing accident, and we had been anticipating my father's death. He was approaching 80. He had been in declining health for some time. He did love the Lord. We were very close. At the same time, though, his death was certainly something that I, in particular, uh, grieved. Uh, He would not be here with me in this world anymore, and I would greatly miss him. And in the process of beginning to sort through living beyond his presence, just within 24 hours or so is exactly when the telephone call came from a sheriff's deputy there in California telling us about our son's rock climbing fall. And at that point, even though we... My wife, Linda, and I had been involved in ministry for many years. We had certainly dealt with lots of situations of tragedy in other people's lives, and some in our own. At that point, we were plunged into an experience of grief like we had never before known that required us to cling to Christ as never before, and that now, as we have walked day by day beyond this experience, uh, has resulted in us in experiencing God's faithfulness and God's care in ways we had never known before. 
The, the irony, Glenda, I think behind all of this is even though we give uh, cognizant um, acknowledgement that death is a part of life, as unpleasant as that may be, as distasteful as that may be, it's something that we all recognize. You know, the, the seed falls to the ground and dies. There, There is, you know, to man appointed once to die and then the judgment. We know that this is part of life and it's a normative part of life. And yet, in spite of that cognizant reasoning uh, or giving mental assent to that notion, this yet remains a topic that we still struggle with. It really does. And I think that um, before Nathan went to heaven, I felt I knew exactly what it was like for somebody that was grieving. But when it actually happened, I realized that I knew nothing. And it is quite a journey. It's very complex. And um, we experienced it just like anybody else would that that goes through it and had some very tough days. But at the same time, because we had faith in Jesus Christ, we saw God everywhere. And we, um, he helped us get through it. And we just felt like we needed to write the book to help people that were walking this road know that God sees them, that he knows everything they think about, that he sees every tear they shed, and that he will walk with them. Was there a moment early on in this experience, Preston, and, and we should, for the benefit of our listeners, um, let folks know that uh, you're, you're not just kind of a casual believer here. Um, you, you've, you've walked with Christ for many, many years. You've served in key leadership roles with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Um, yourself, Glenda, you've been a Bible teacher. You've been a writer of Bible study curriculum. Um, so knowledge of the Scripture, things of this sort, is certainly a topic to which neither of you are strangers, and yet as much as this thing came upon you, uh, losing both your dad and a son inside of one week, was there that moment of, what's going on here? God, why are you allowing this? Lord, where have you gone? Well, the the why question certainly does come up, but a few days after these events happened so close together, I was indeed pondering them and trying to make some sort of sense out of them. And what dawned on me is that those whose well-being depends on figuring everything out and understanding everything will not be well this side of heaven. Because right now we do see through a glass darkly. We see as in a mirror dimly. We don't understand a lot of things. But the fact is, we don't have to understand everything to be well in Jesus Christ. When we cling to Jesus, we experience that Jesus is enough. In fact, he's more than enough, and he is the only one who's enough. And by clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in faith, in our darkest hours, then even our darkest hours can be occasions when we see God uh, and the light of his love shining through to us faithfully. They can also be occasions when others are helped by how we go through those difficulties in a way that they might not be helped by how we live when the sun is shining and the birds are singing. Do you have other children? We do. We have a daughter uh, who's married and has three children of her own now. We have an older son uh, who's 19 months older than Nathan was. Uh, And then our youngest child is uh, 17 and uh, a junior in high school. So we have four children. 
And that in itself has been a part of our experience of walking through grief. We have experienced, as many listeners would have who have had a similar experience, that people who haven't had a loved one, especially a child die, don't quite understand the dynamic. Uh, Some people say, well, at least you've got three more. Well, the fact is, uh, three more here with you do not take the place of the one who is now absent from you. Each one is special in their own way. And just as our Lord told about the shepherd who, when he had a hundred sheep and 99 were with him and one was missing, and he went after the one missing one. So no matter how many children we have, we, we miss the one who is not with us. And, of course, added then to the complexity of all this is not only dealing with the grief and the why questions, but also helping your children go through the process of losing a sibling. People that are grieving right now realize that, but children grieve um, differently when they lose a brother. And we have seen it in three different ways. One child walked through it with us and was very expressive. One has been very quiet about it and is probably still working through it. And then Jessie Ruth was just 12 years old when it happened, and her grief um, in some part came quickly, but the biggest part of it did not come for years down the road and so all of them did grieve differently Let's pause for a moment. When we come back to more of our conversation with Preston and Glenda Parrish, we'll talk about some of the different methodology that goes in this process of grieving. As Glenda points out, we all have different ways of approaching it, and there's, in many cases, not just one right answer. But how do you go about figuring out for yourself what that process is, what it ought to look like? How do you come out on the other side of this loss and grief um, successfully so? We'll talk more with Preston and Glenda Parrish, a look at finding hope in times of grief, as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Finding Hope in Times of Grief, that is the title of a new book by my guest tonight, Preston and Glenda Parrish. We're talking about how you go about dealing with the grieving and loss process and what all of that means and, and how to indeed, in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of that sense of of, of desperation in some cases, uh, that hopelessness, to actually find hope. Certainly that is the promise that we all have in Christ Jesus. And, and yet, going through that struggle, that loss, that hope, um, how to come out on the other side, that is key to what we're discussing tonight. Um, oftentimes, people get the sense, I think, uh, Preston, and I'm sure both you and Glenda and your family went through this, of just simply being overwhelmed. It's almost as if you were paralyzed by the grief, um, maybe for a short season, uh, distracted by the details that have to be worked through that, that kind of keep your mind and your heart off topic uh, because you've got funeral preparations and things of this sort and dealing with the opening parts of, of an estate plan or, or, or execution of an estate plan, things of this nature. And then at some point, at some point, you have to come full force and deal, full, full, fully frontal rather, in dealing with the loss and the grief. What was it like in, in your case? Well, Craig, you're very perceptive. Uh, Dealing with grief is an ongoing matter that has lots of layers, an ongoing challenge and struggle. In fact, the struggle of one's lifetime, I would say. Grief has about it both that initial shock uh, that comes to you when an event happens, 
when someone you love dies and is no longer going to be a presence in your life in this world. And we all pretty much understand that, and that's why people rally around so quickly with flowers and food and cards and calls and all of those things that happen typically in the initial days and few weeks after someone experiences the loss, the death of a loved one. But probably the most surprising thing to us was both was that there is also a longer-term sort of time-release effect to grief where not just for days or weeks but for months and years the effects of grief and its impact on your life are something you walk through and live with and learn to wear and have to deal with day in day out that was a surprise and then also surprising to us was the fact that most people really don't understand that they think after a couple of months maybe your life is going to be back to normal and you're going to get on with things well the fact is when you experience the death of someone you love deeply uh, you will never be back to normal you will have a new normal it would be very much like learning to live perhaps with an amputation uh, its effects will be with you for the rest of your days you will go on living but you will live differently and you will see things differently and so for us we were surprised by the ongoing nature of it we were also surprised by the lack of understanding of the ongoing nature of it and a part of writing finding hope in times of grief which has been published by harvest house uh, has been to help people walking through grief understand they're not alone understand something of the nature of the challenge but also to help people who are relating to people in grief who are trying to support people in grief to understand at least a little bit more about what's going on um, people looking on from the outside at those who are grieving lots of times they don't see a very pretty picture that was certainly the case in our lives and glenda and i looked at each other many times along the way following the deaths of my father and our son and said you know why would anybody even want to be with us we're sure not much fun at this time in life and so it really is quite an ongoing process that there's not a lot of understanding about in some cases and hopefully through the book finding hope in times of grief uh we're helping to give some insight to those going through it as well as those living with those going through it. Did you find also perhaps a lot of just plain old-fashioned misconceptions out there about the grieving process? I mean, oftentimes there's that sense of, well, don't worry about it, you'll get over it. I think of, of people that uh, will attend a funeral service and will come, and, and of course they mean well, they want to share words of comfort, but instead end up saying something that seems to be, for the moment of the grieving person, so incredibly stupid. And then we ourselves add, I guess, the, the sense of pressure that we're, we're trying to kind of show that stiff upper lip we want to get back to work, get back to life, get back to the old normal sometimes. Certainly that is true. I remember very clearly about two weeks after uh, Nathan's funeral that um, I said to a friend on a Friday, I think by Monday we'll be back to our normal schedule. And I was so wrong because the grief was just paralyzing and it took um, really for me a good three years before I really got back to much of anything normal and back to another point that you had asked before I think that's just part of everybody does it differently and a, a friend um, some people said some very freeing things one friend said at one point I just said I just cannot stop crying and she said cry as much as you need to so there were friends that um had great compassion but there was a misconception and misunderstanding on our part of 
about what grief was, but also we were surprised, especially with the Christian community, about a misunderstanding about grief and some of the things that people would say to us. Help me understand more about that, because, you know, we sometimes as Christians can can say some cruel things, again, I think largely out of a sense of, of, of ignorance or, um, you know, we're, we're wanting to help and just don't realize we're actually doing more harm than good. Well, sometimes it would almost just be flooring, because I guess one of the most insulting things anybody ever said was said to Preston by someone that had been in ministry as long as we had, uh, and he said to Preston, as soon as I found out that your son had gone to heaven, I began to pray that God would not judge me and take my own son. And um, the, the theology that you bring to a situation is very important, but the person grieving already has a tremendous explosion that has occurred in their life, and they're just trying to pick up the pieces and cling to God the best they can. And then when somebody comes and says something like that, it just adds another big explosion. And people just have no idea how important it really is to just say nothing and be a present and uh, pray. Does it also run the gambit, too, in the opposite extreme, uh, Preston? I'm thinking of those that, especially later on in the grieving process, we might be a year later, and, and maybe you can speak to that, too, in a moment. But this idea that, well, I, I don't want to bring back painful memories. I don't bring something up. So, for example, um, the loss of your son, a neighbor who says, well, I know that tomorrow's your son's birthday. They're thinking to themselves, but they don't dare mention it because the impression is that by mentioning something about your son, that's going to bring back some painful thoughts. Well, that's a good point, Craig. People, it's important for people to understand that on the one hand, it's they shouldn't say cliches and trite phrases without really understanding what they're talking about. But at the same time, it's a tremendous blessing to a person to know that a year or two or three down the road, others are remembering your lost, your absent loved one and they let you know that they're still thinking of you, that they're still praying for your family, that the individual was important and special to them because of a particular reason. That's a tremendous blessing and encouragement. Part of the challenge of going through grief is you come to think you're alone, you're isolated, you're the only one walking around feeling like you have the perpetual chronic flu in your soul. And when somebody down the road does say to you, you know, I was thinking about your son, I was thinking about your father, I was thinking about your brother or sister just today, and I remembered this, I remembered that, weren't they a blessing? Uh, that's a great encouragement. It lets people, it lets you know that people have not forgotten and that you are not alone, humanly speaking. And of course, we are not alone from the standpoint that God is with us. He sent his son into the world as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and, and that is the key to coming out the other side, is, as you raised. It is having that intimate, vital, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and ideally before the storm hits your life. When a storm hits your life, it's a little late sometimes to get the foundation in place, but our Lord said, if you hear the word of God and do it, you are like the person who has built his house on a rock, and when the storms do come, not if they come, but when they come, your house will stand. And so the key to getting through it and coming out the other side strong and healthy uh, is indeed having that relationship with Christ, that experience in God's word, that daily moment-by-moment practice of prayer. Those things really do make a difference in addition to having the caring interaction with people who, who, who are praying for you 
and who want to help in any way they can and have some measure of sensitivity. When we come back, a look at taking care of yourself and learning what the process is for you. Finding hope in times of grief. Our conversation with Preston and Glenda Parrish continues on this edition of Lifeline. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 